Premier Christian Newscast. Hello and welcome to Premier Christian Newscast. I'm Tim Wyatt and today we're considering the painful question of how the church should reckon with its historic links to slavery. Every year the entanglement of many churches with the slave trade in the past is becoming clearer and clearer. Some Christians owned slaves, others profited from their labour and sometimes this money was used to build churches or endow institutions. Does this matter? Is it worthwhile digging up centuries old links nobody today would defend? And are financial reparations to the descendants of those enslaved by our predecessors a good Christian response to these troubling revelations? This abominable trade took men, women and children, created in God's image, and stripped them of their dignity and freedom. The fact that some within the church actively supported and profited from it is a source of shame. This is a moment for lament, repentance and restorative action. Those were the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, earlier this year, when it emerged that the church commissioners, who managed the Church of England's £9 billion endowment, had historic links with the slave trade. Research found that one of its predecessor funds had invested in companies which owned slaves and received donations from people who profited from plantations. The findings were only the latest episode in an unfolding story. British churches are delving into their dark pasts and finding time after time their institutions, finances and leaders were enmeshed in the repugnant trade in human beings. Just months earlier, a church court had refused permission from a Cambridge University college which had wanted to pull down a plaque on the walls of its chapel honouring Tobias Rustat, a major benefactor who invested in several slave trading companies. Numerous other churches have discovered stained glass windows or memorials in the memory of long-dead Christians who it has turned out owned slaves or profited from their trade. But while it might feel like this is new information, Richard Reddy from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland said most of the core facts had been known for decades. Reddy is the Director of Justice and Inclusion at Churches Together and the author of several books on slavery and racism in the church. For him, little of this recent reckoning was new information, but had instead for a long time been suppressed. Uh, I've got to be honest with you, um, I've always been aware of that. Um, so just to say, uh, between 2005 and 2008, I was the project director of an initiative called Set All Free, which was established by Churches Together in England, CTE to um, encourage the churches to mark the uh, bicentenary of Britain's abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, mm. which was in 1807. Um, so uh, during sort of uh, that period, I was acutely aware of what the churches uh, did in terms of uh, their sort of collective work to um, uh, seek to end both the transatlantic slave trade in 1807, but also subsequently their work to end slavery in 1833-1834. 
But I've always been aware of, you know, some of the, the other side of a story, the first half of a story, mm. you know, to use an old football analogy, it's a game of two halves. So what were the churches doing uh, prior to all of that? And mm. that's the kind of the, the sort of the unsavory side that, you know, churches feel uh, less inclined to talk about because, it, it, you know, aspects of it are, are clearly unpalatable. Um, being of Caribbean extraction, you know, my parents are Jamaican, you know, you sort of, you, you you read history books, which spoke about, you know, the church and its connection. Uh, never in uh, too much depth, but you got an idea that the church's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade clearly wasn't all about abolition mm. you know, or emancipation. But, you know, there were, you know, clearly uh, aspects of collusion. Uh, mm. in there as well so I was kind of I'm, 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 I've, I've always been familiar with it so for instance you know the kind of conversations as you as you point out about stained glass windows and how so-called philanthropists who you know for want of another word or better word you know were slave traders um, uh, and also you know how the churches were uh, not only invested in some of these practices but also compensated um, mm. You know, particularly in, in the 1830s uh, for for the, the so-called properties that they had in the Caribbean. Yeah, always been familiar with that. Jason Roach, a vicar in the Church of England who currently works as Director of Ministries at London City Mission, said as a black Christian it was always painful, even if unsurprising, to discover the church he loves and serves was complicit in slavery. I think it, it's certainly painful. Um just the other day, I was speaking to someone who's doing some research into a particular diocese, and it turned out that there were strong links between uh, the money that had been used to build some of the churches in this diocese and uh, the country of origin of my parents. And I just hadn't known any of this, and it was completely incidental. Uh, but you, you find yourself with a sort of pang of this is the church that I feel like I belong to, I feel part of. And at the same time, there's this complexity um, that, that I can't quite understand and is beyond, you know, the time that I'm in, but is filled with yeah, complexity, evil, um, and evil in such a way that it's affected people who are close to me. And so it's mixed feelings, if I'm honest, Tim. It's mixed feelings. I bet it must be complicated. Do you think primarily that this kind of looking backwards is is valuable? Because you sometimes hear people saying, you know, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago. No one today in the CV would defend slavery or the slave trade or profiting off enslavement. Why are we kind of spending time, effort, kind of peering backwards? Do you have much time for that argument? Or do you think actually this is really valuable work? I think it's unquestionable that... The way that our thinking has been shaped in the past affects our thinking in deep ways, often subconscious ways even now. And I'm grateful for ways in which in recent times, some of that's been brought to the fore, uh, ways in which, for example, um, race science, which, as you say, we would, you know, no one today would accept uh, or agree with some of the things that were being said decades ago. They just wouldn't. And yet some of those things have deeply shaped the way that um, we think, even in our subconscious uh, now, and have shaped uh, the way that um, organizations have been developed and, 
and so on and so forth. And because of that, I think it is worth flagging up and being aware of that history. One, so that we're more careful moving forward, uh, but also so that we can lament the, the pain that it's caused for many over many uh, decades and even centuries um, in the past. And, and that is an important thing. You know, the, the Bible says that we should weep with those who weep. Um, uh, and, uh, and actually, this is an opportunity to do that. Reddy also has little time for the argument that pouring through dusty archives to identify where our predecessors sinfully colluded with slavery is of no value today. Well, put it this way, <clears throat> church never had a problem in talking up its credentials in terms of what it, 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 it did to, to end a transatlantic slave trade. So, for instance, you know, I mentioned the whole thing about 1807. You know, they were keen to turn it into a Wilberfest. So, you know, they, they went out of their way to talk about William Wilberforce uh, and the Clapham um, sect and how Christians should uh, use Wilberforce and, and the Clapham sect and people like John Newton and Hannah Moore and others as inspiration to tackle modern day slavery. So when it comes to presenting this information as good news, the churches don't have a problem in doing that. But, you know, um, I, I believe I'm a Christian. I believe the truth sets you free. You know, you can't tell half the story and then ignore the other half. And I think one of the things that Black History does, and we're in Black History Month at the moment, is that it actually uh, uncovers stories that um, have, have been there, but people have chosen to uncover it, or chosen rather to, to, to hide it, to cover it up. And, and let's face it, <clears throat> this is British history, you know, we're talking about here. Uh, it's all out there. Uh, or it's available, it's accessible. It's just that people have uh, chosen, in, in some cases, to deliberately um, uh, cover up that information, you know, to, to ensure people don't have uh, access to it for whatever reason. Um, you know, the, 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 the if the church is in the sort of the, the, the truth-telling business, uh, you know, particularly historic truth-telling, shouldn't feel ashamed of uh, uh, being able to tell that history. You know, so for me, finding out more about um, uh, the church's role in this uh, uh, can give me a better understanding of, uh, you know, who I am uh, and why I believe what I believe uh, and get a better understanding of, you know, who, who God is and how God is a God of justice and, you know, how certain verses in scripture could be used uh, for one reason and how they can also be used for another, you know, uh, reason how they, you know, were, were clearly twisted and distorted to justify certain practices and behaviours, but also mm. how other people could actually uh, interpret, you know, to use, you know, hermeneutics to interpret scripture in a particular way uh, uh, and, and to see them as uh, being part of, you know, uh, particularly Christ's liberative work uh, to set everyone free, both, yeah. you know, um, sort of uh, f uh, physically, emotionally, uh, and spiritually and psychologically. For both Roach and Reddy, the primary response from Christians to learning of their troubling past must be deep lament. But far too often the church had skipped a stage, jumping straight from apology to attempting reconciliation. Lament must first lead to repentance, Reddy said, which meant turning away from sin and pursuing a different path. Yeah, it has to be lamenting and repenting. Can't stop there. It starts there, but it can't stop there. Um, you know, far too often it it just sort of um, it laments, but it doesn't repent. 
uh, and uh, you know, repentance basically means that you know you recognize the wrong that you you've done. Uh, and my understanding, anyways, and then you turn away from it and you mm. agree to to pursue a different path, usually a path in the opposite direction. Uh, far too often, you know, if you're looking at a sort of a, a stages or a a cycle, it it starts with lamenting and it ends with lamenting. In fact, it starts with lamenting and then from lamenting you move straight to reconciliation or you seek to have reconciliation. What's always missing is this sense of justice. And there's no sense of justice in any of this or, you know, people seeking justice. Mm. Cheap grace to quote Bonhoeffer. Here, his words perhaps unknowingly echo those of Justin Welby earlier on the church's links to slavery. This is a moment for lament, repentance and restorative action. More and more activists, pastors and even ordinary Christians are arguing that apologies and lamentation alone are not enough. Churches confessing their collusion with slavery need to also move towards restorative action. And for many, restorative action means reparations. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. You see, church reparations is a glimpse into what could have been. If the church had only made different moral decisions with respect to race years earlier, or to put it another way, church reparations is about imagining what things would be like today if our black brothers and sisters had been an integral part of our churches for the last 300 years. That was the American pastor Duke Kwon, who leads an influential Washington, D.C. church and is the co-author of a book called Reparations, A Christian Call for Repentance and Repair. He's one of many voices calling for reparations in the church in the U.S., where the conversation around racial justice has been most alive. The US and the Canadian branch of the powerful and influential Jesuit order of Catholic priests has pledged $100 million already in reparations to the descendants of those enslaved by Jesuit bodies. The world-famous Princeton Theological Seminary has set aside at least $27 million, with millions more promised from the Catholic University, Georgetown, and several other prominent Christian colleges. Several Episcopal Church dioceses, the sister church of the C of E, have also begun setting up their own reparation funds, and several are lobbying for a bill which would establish a federal reparations commission. Roach said it was undeniable that the reparations conversation was alive and kicking, but cautioned the whole topic was fiendishly complex. It's complicated. We've got to say that it is complicated. It's complicated on a historical, sociological level because exactly how we discern um, what kind of implications there were and what kind of impact that they've made on people over histories and generations is a very, very hard thing to do. And I guess when I say that, I'm thinking about what some people might call the language of reparations. You know, to what extent uh, might there be some sort of recompense for damage that has been done over the generations and it's just very, very complicated to try and work out what that looks like and what that could have been. Um, so, so I think it's hard. Um, 
I think I think there is a biblical principle though, isn't there? You think of Zacchaeus and mm-hmm. the the damage that he had done and was aware that he'd done to people in his community and he said, Look, I'm gonna repay this. I'm gonna repay this. Um the complexity here is just the the distance both in time and in geography from the people and the events that actually happened. And because of that, it's, it's very hard to make the theological parallels between what was hap- what's happened in the Bible, what we see in the Bible and, and these sorts of situations. And so for me, in terms of what a response might look like, in terms of that specific issue that I'm talking into, it, it might look more like um, trying to think about ways of providing opportunity moving forward uh, that wasn't there in the past. Um, so that's not so much putting a, a financial number on something, or it's more about saying we recognize that um, people were disadvantaged in all kinds of ways in the past. And what things can we put in place to try and redress that going forward? And crucially, um, how can we ensure that the sorts of people who were disadvantaged are right at the heart of developing those things and indeed in enabling them to flourish going forward. But here in Britain, even with the sense of transatlantic distance from the murky business of trading in human lives, more and more churches are being forced to consider the questions of reparations. Earlier this year, the Quakers agreed at their annual meeting to make financial and practical reparations for their forebears' entanglement in slavery. The demands are particularly pressing on the Church of England. The head of an official Caribbean commission considering reparations has said, quote, apologies are not enough and urged the C of E to enter into a, quote, reparatory process, noting Caribbean people continue to suffer harm to this day as a result of the legacy of slavery. The issue is also gained force beyond the Caribbean too. Largely unnoticed during this summer's Lambeth Conference of Global Anglican Bishops was a call to look into the possibility of using the C of E's £9 billion of assets to fund, quote, redemptive action and reparation elsewhere in the Anglican Communion in an effort to redress the Church's links with colonialism and slavery. But the logistical problems remain. Given the distance in both time and geography between those harmed and those who committed the damage, it is very difficult to work out what a modern-day reenactment of Zacchaeus' act might look like. Even if an agreed amount of cash could be detached from a church's income or assets for reparations, who would be chosen to receive the money and how would it be funneled back to them? And even if modern-day descendants of slaves could be identified, how could you fairly calculate in pounds and pence the damage the legacy of slavery has had on each of them. These kind of issues have bedeviled attempts by American church bodies to begin reparations. Several committees formed to examine the issue have been running for more than a decade now without finding consensus on a way forward. One other approach might be non-financial reparations. Reddy said that there were many ways in which the Western church could use its position, institutions and power to lift up black people still burdened by the legacy of slavery. Well, the church's weird thing is, I mean, you know, the churches have tremendous power um, and it's a child, sort of a church is seeking to maybe divest themselves of power, a certain authority uh, as well. And you get action in terms of, you know, education and you get action in terms of training, you know, um, and, you know, some of the things that I highlighted, for instance, um, you know, churches looking at the way they, they function, the way they operate looking at systems and structures that are oppressive 
um, systems and structures that uh, don't give uh, uh, fellow Christians, black, Asian and minority ethnic, you know, men and women who are made in the image of God, opportunities to exercise their God-given gifts and talents to build up the body of Christ. You know, these are kinds of things that churches needed need to be aware of. But also, you know, um, particularly certain denominations, um, there are, there are legacies that need to be addressed. Um, and you know, that's when you sort of get directly into to to issues like reparations. So I'm saying, well, you know, if you're going to model good practice, then it would be great if the churches could actually set up a system which uh, would allow, you know, I'm talking about bursaries and scholarships, which would allow particularly some of the young people, because we know how important an education is uh, in terms of social advancement. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, the churches, in terms of a, a, a legacy stroke uh, reparation system, particularly for um, people uh, from the diaspora who, African diaspora who are actually living in Britain, you know, this particular juncture, uh, and young people like that. And we know how young black people face pretty poor outcomes and how uh, at the moment the education system appears to be failing them because a lot of young black boys in particular don't make the grade at 16. And some of it is to do, I think, with uh, the education system and the teaching. I think for me, for one of the things that the churches should do is um, to put its money where its mouth is in uh, supporting a permanent memorial to the Africans who were um, uh, caught up, well, as some, someone has said, who uh, were severed, suffered yet survived the transatlantic slave trade. So we have a scenario in this country where you've got stained glass windows and statues to uh, uh, um, uh, so-called white um, abolitionists, you know, so, you know, William Wilberforce is, is buried in uh, Westminster Abbey. You know, we you, you go out to Olney and there are lots of uh, tributes to, to John Newton there. Uh, Clapham in, in South London, most of the streets there are, are named after, you know, members of a Clapham sect, you know, Venn Street um, uh, and, and other streets like that. So you've got these kind of memorials that sort of uh, rightly, some would say, lionize the role of the, um, the abolitionists. We know that. You know, in, in places like Bristol, you have the Edward Colston statue. Um, so you have, uh, you know, statues to uh, so-called uh, uh, slave traders. But, you know, at the time they were known as philanthropists and businessmen and some of them were MPs. But there is nothing, no permanent memorial in this country to the Africans. And let's face it, this country was inextricably linked to the transatlantic slave trade. You know, this is no passing five-year thing. This is something in which, you know, Britain was had its hands deeply uh, messed, uh, you know, in this particular practice for, for, for centuries. Yet, you know, there is no, no, no memorial. Roach agreed, arguing a more successful and less contested approach would involve opening up educational opportunities. So would that look potentially along the lines of, I know some universities which have had kind of a similar process of kind of unpicking um, kind of slavery connected money in their past have have set up you know maybe a scholarship for for people from certain backgrounds or or from certain parts of the world as a, as a as a gesture as an effort to say you know we we can't put money back in the pockets of of the people who were enslaved because they're sadly long dead but we can yeah it, is, is that a, something a, not maybe that precise example but something along those lines is that what you're envisaging 
Yeah, I think that's the kind of thing. And then perhaps the, the nuance on it would be who is actually involved in deciding who gets those scholarships and who is involved in the in the processes behind it running uh, such that we can try and demonstrate that even in the process of trying to help, it's not uh, those who have benefited hanging on to power, but trying to give that that power and opportunity away. Um, so, for example, I know of a, a, a group of people who uh, have tried historically to help fund people to do theological training. And they've said, look, we want to provide some funds we to, to enable people who from disadvantaged backgrounds to, to access theological training. But the way that we're going to do that is going to create a, a group of people who themselves have, if you like, broken through glass ceilings and help them be at the forefront of shaping exactly how this works and how the finances are distributed. After all, a huge transfer of wealth from the rich, mostly white Western church to the global south might sound progressive, Roach said, but ran the risk of perpetuating power imbalances. I think the Western church in general uh, has has got very used to giving uh, and is is not very good at receiving. And perhaps before we focus on the need to give, we need to focus on the need to receive. If we think about the Anglican church in general, um, the majority of believing Anglicans are not in the West. And yet, um, to what extent are we as Western evangelicals, sorry, Western Church of England people, actually listening to the voices of the majority of our Anglican brothers and sisters. And so maybe it actually starts by saying, how do we hear the voices Mm. um, of our Anglican brothers and sisters, their theology, uh, their practice, um, the the ways in which they are doing mission and evangelism and actually receiving from them? Because even this whole conversation and this process of reparations, as important as it is, as complex as it is, reinforces the idea that it's um, those in the West who need to give to those who don't have, as opposed to receive from those who have something to give us. Mm. So that that's not to take away from what you're saying, Tim, but perhaps to give a different perspective on how we might learn and be blessed and in terms and also be a blessing to uh, those in different uh, parts of the world. But Reddy said that while financial reparations were complicated, it was vital not to sweep the difficult and sometimes awkward issue under the rug. After all, money did play a huge role in ending slavery, in the form of large sums of compensation the British state paid not to the slaves themselves, but to their former owners, in an effort to persuade the rich, wealthy industrialists not to resist abolition in the 1830s. So for some people, finance is central to this. Uh, I think it's important to have a conversation about money because let's face it, in 1833, 1834, 20 million pounds was given to people who already had money to persuade them to actually um, give up their um, uh, entanglements in the transatlantic, in in African chattel enslavement. You know, money was an issue then, but, you know, money was never given to Africans, but money was given to uh, church, state and monarchy at that time as as an inducement for them to to agree to um, uh, ending the transatlantic slave trade. So money has to be a part of it, and it can't be the be-all and end-all. So where does that all leave us? 
the reparations conversation, whether in the form of direct cash transfers or indirect educational bursaries, has begun in earnest, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. But there does remain a frustrating lack of clarity or consensus on what road, if any, the church should go down, and how fast. Until this issue can be resolved, it seems likely as many churches will remain, in some ways, prisoners of their sinful pasts. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast, but if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use, and why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget to also subscribe to the podcast on your phone or tablet to ensure that you receive each episode automatically sent to your device week by week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast 